This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, so you can look in the Bible there if you wish, or it's on page 6 of your bulletin. And this is an important passage in Scripture because it recounts the last words, the, the last interaction with John the Baptist, a very important figure in Scripture. And these are moments when he himself was trying to navigate an obstacle that he saw in front of him, a speed bump, as it were, that the gospel of Jesus presented to him. And Luke here reports a very ordinary question from a very extraordinary man. And as Jesus entertains that question, he lays low some of those obstacles, not just for John, but for us as well. This is Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sicknesses and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me." After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? Jesus asked. What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand. Once again, as we come to you each week with the same prayer, Lord, you know it before we come. We acknowledge that unless your spirit works in our minds and our hearts, we will not see, we will not recognize the good news that is proclaimed to us by your word. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray, Father, that you would help us to to see and hear not just the voice of a man, but the movement of the spirit of God 
in our souls. We pray you would do this for your own glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Something of a public service announcement. Speed bumps are an important element of traffic safety. And I hate them. Don't you? I mean, some of them are small and hard-edged, almost like the curb of the street. And just to get your car over them, you have to stop and gently roll your tires over and, and then move along. And some of them are large and round. And if you're not careful going over those, they'll scrape the bottom of your car and leave debris from your car scattered about the curb on either side of the street. All of them are supposed to be painted and bright and visible to an alert driver, but sometimes they're not. And so sometimes those bumpers and car parts are scattered along the curb. I try to avoid them when I can. I mean, there's one route into our neighborhood in particular where if you take that road, you're going to have to cross over about five of those large round speed bumps, which you really need a four-wheeler Jeep to cross. And so I try to avoid that route into the neighborhood. There are also, as it were, speed bumps, you might call them, that that get in the way, maybe, that slow or or obscure your, your pathway of growth in grace in the gospel. And Luke's goal, as he stated at the beginning of his gospel account, is that you may be certain about these things that have happened in days of late, that you might be sure about this gospel account that you have heard, he says to his friend. And so Luke is very interested in the speed bumps that we might face. This passage here that we just read is also recorded in in Matthew's gospel. And it's interesting because it's, I think, one of the really great examples of a scripture that demonstrates that the Bible's account of history must be true and accurate. Because if you're making it up, if you're just making up a story, as as some would accuse the gospel writers of having done about Jesus, his miracles and his uh, resurrection, if you're just making up a story, then you don't want to cast an unsure light on the key characters in the story. You know, you're, you're going to look at Abraham and Moses and you're going to look at David and Job and Jonah and Peter and you want those, those guys to appear as strong and certain and capable as they possibly can because it shores up the story that you're just creating. But that's not what Scripture does. Here, John the Baptist, of all people, one of the most pivotal characters in Scripture, pivotal between the Old Testament and the New for sure, hits a speed bump, so to speak. And I think it's so helpful that Luke here presents this account to us because it's an ordinary question asked by an extraordinary man, and it's a question that we all desperately need to acknowledge. Is Jesus the one? Is Jesus the one that God has sent? And Jesus uses the question here to remove some of the obstacles to gospel faith. One of those obstacles is our view of doubt. Luke wants us to recognize, I think, here that doubt is not always unbelief. 
Verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things. What things? What are the things that John's disciples told him about? Well, if you remember, as we've looked at these past couple of weeks in chapter 7 of Luke, you'll remember what these things are. These things that Jesus had been doing in Galilee. He had healed the servant of a Roman centurion, and he had raised a dead man, the son of a widow. And you'll remember that Luke told us there at the end of that account that the news of these things, this, this report about Jesus, spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding countryside. And so the news was spreading, and the word came to John himself. And something just didn't add up for John. And so John sent two disciples with a question. Now, don't skip the obvious thing here. Why did John send two disciples? Why didn't he just go himself? You would think that this man would do that. After all, he was the cousin of Jesus. He knew Jesus. And he could have just gone and asked him this question himself. But no, actually, he couldn't do it. Because where was John at this point? Do you know in the gospel account? John is in prison. John himself was a messenger. He had been given a a job by God to do, a job that was prophetic in nature, a job in which he was to herald the coming of the true king of the universe by confronting the sin of the universe, including confronting the sin of the worldly king, of that region anyway, a tetrarch named Herod. John had confronted King Herod about his illegal and immoral marriage to a woman who really you could call the Jezebel of the New Testament. It was an evil marriage. And John had confronted these people about this thing. And so the king, King Herod, threw John in prison. And we know from from early centuries historians where John was in prison. He was in a place called Machaerus. Machaerus is a a fortress on the eastern edge of the Dead Sea, just across the Dead Sea from Judea. Machaerus is is a place where there is nothing alive. It's up on the rocks above the Dead Sea, which itself is, you know, you think of an ocean, you think of, of, of water filled with salt. The Dead Sea is just the opposite. It's salt filled with water. It is, it is absolutely dead. It's appropriately named. And so here's John in this prison sitting on the rocks above the Dead Sea. He could look out probably if he had a, a little hole in his cell. He might be able to look out across the Dead Sea and see Judea a couple of miles across the Dead Sea. But around him there was nothing. It was desolate isolation. And that's where John is. And he's wondering, when is the Messiah going to fix Things. If Jesus is the one, then when, it, when is he going to fix things? I mean, what had Jesus been doing that John heard the report about? I mean, back in Luke 5, Jesus had, we're told, healed a leper in, quote, one of the towns. It wasn't even big enough to be worthy of naming, but it was one of the towns where Jesus had done this work. He had healed a paralyzed man in another town. He had annoyed the Pharisees on the Sabbath. He had picked some disciples. He'd preached a sermon. He'd healed a sick servant of a centurion. He'd raised a dead man. And he'd done all these things in podunk, nowhere places in Galilee. And 
What do you think John probably was thinking? Why is he wasting his time in Nowheresville? I'm sitting here in prison. And if he's come to release the prisoners, why am I still here in prison? I mean, this is John's situation. And so you can understand why he would ask the question, is he the one? Even the prophet had doubts. And so he sends these two messengers with the very pointed question. Are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? You know, if, if smoke leads to fire, then surely doubt may sometimes lead to unbelief. But it's very important for us to recognize that doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is actually a state of mind that is closed against the things of God. And John, we know, was a believer. John loved God. He suffered for the gospel. He suffered for the faith that he faithfully proclaimed. And yet, because of his circumstances, he had hit a speed bump called doubt. And the lesson for us is very important to recognize, acknowledging from the history of this account, that Christians can and do doubt. It's really important for us all to acknowledge that. It only makes sense. It's going to come. The doubts are going to come. I mean, if God is infinite in knowledge and wisdom and power, we at the same time are finite in all of those things. And God himself explains it through Isaiah. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And therefore, those things being true... We will doubt, but doubt is not always unbelief. I mean, think about your doubts a bit. You do have them. You you do have them. Doubts about the gospel, doubts about God, doubts about his work in your own life. And they really, I think, take on some different shapes as you age, as you move through this life. But most often, whatever stage you're in, they're produced by pressure. Some pressure that comes from outside of you, or maybe it's pressure that comes from inside of you. But very often, they're produced by pressure. John is in prison. Or you might say, my spouse got cancer. Or you might say, the kids at school won't be my friend. Or you might say that mom and dad are way too restrictive on me, and I just wish they would let up a little bit. The pressure is on, for whatever reason, and so doubts begin to arise. You know, when you're a teenager, the doubts begin to form in, in more mature ways than they did when you were a child. And you begin to realize that just because mom and dad say something is true doesn't make it true. Despite the fact that when you were younger, that's what they would say, right? I mean, why should I do this? Because I said so. I mean, that's, that's a wise and common parental instruction. But as you grow a little older into your teenage years, you begin to realize just because mom and dad say it's true doesn't make it true. And especially when it comes to the gospel, you begin to recognize that there are questions out there. There are other people that believe other things. There are other people that have some significant objections to the Bible, to Jesus, to the gospel that we proclaim. And so I begin to wonder, is it true or not? And you have to know, That's okay. 
those doubts are okay. When you're a young adult, things begin to change a little bit, and, and maybe you want to shape your life in a certain way. You want for your work or your possessions or your relationships to be a certain way that adapts to the lifestyle that you desire, and maybe you begin to realize that the gospel will challenge you on some of those points, and so you begin to doubt. And it becomes something of a doubt of convenience because, well, you know the gospel says this, but I know that I want that, and so how am I going to reshape what I believe to make it fit? And your doubts begin to take that shape. As, as an older adult, you know, maybe things are a little bit different sometimes. For me, I realize at this stage of my life, I really, honestly, I think I can tell you, I do not doubt the, historic, the historical accuracy of the Bible. Now, you should be a little relieved to hear your pastor say that. <laughs> I honestly don't have any doubts about the historical reliability of the Bible or the historical accuracy of the gospel accounts. I'm confident that they are true. And when some objection arises, my heart response to it is, well, that's a good objection. I'm glad to hear that. I'd like to go find the answer because there's an answer for it. However, I do doubt what God is doing sometimes. I do doubt and wonder what God is doing when things don't seem to match up to what I think they ought to be and doubts begin to arise practically in my life. We all have doubts. I mean, even the strongest Christians have doubt. You know, Martin Luther, who we remembered back in October as we walked our way through the five solas of the Reformation. Martin Luther is well known among Christians in history as having stood his ground at the, the council before the religious authorities who were challenging him and demanding that he recant of the gospel of grace that he had begun to proclaim. And they told him, Luther, recant or die. And he gave a very famous answer to that. You know, basically he said, my conscience is bound to the scriptures. I can do no other. Here I stand. And that was his answer. But you know, that was not his first answer. When they first told him, Luther, recant or die, do you know what his answer was? Um, can I have a couple of days to think about it? That was his answer. He wanted some time to sleep on it. And he came back to the council when his time was up, and his answer then was, my conscience is bound to the scripture. I can't do anything else. This is where I stand. God, help me. Luther was a bold Christian, but he was a doubter. Because even strong Christians will doubt. Every Christian will doubt. And doubt is not always unbelief. So what do you do with your doubts? You do what John did here and you take them to Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Notice he doesn't answer it with a yes or no. He doesn't just simply say to these messengers, yes, I'm the one. Would have been simple. But he wanted John to work through his doubts a bit, I presume. And so what does he do? Instead, he demonstrates the answer. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind, and he replied to the messengers, Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind have received their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
These are the things that Isaiah told John that he should expect of me. And just go back and tell John to remember his scripture and answer the question for himself. John expected somehow for Jesus to come in an M1 battle tank and wage war. But instead, Jesus came in an ambulance ready for triage. And some of that merciful care that he brought was reserved for his cousin John, the great prophet. This question was no speed bump for Jesus. Not at all. Verse 23, he offers what you might see as maybe a mild rebuke of his cousin. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know, your your doubts may cause you to stumble at times, but your doubts do not arise because of Jesus. They arise because of you and because of your own circumstances that surround you. He will not be surprised by them when you bring them to him. But doubts are not the only speed bump, of course. There's another one that Jesus sees here, and that is our assessment of greatness. Great is not always good. Great is not always good. Having offered his assessment of himself now, recounting scripture for John's messengers, Jesus now offers an assessment of John. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Notice he doesn't change the subject. John's messengers had to leave. They had some traveling to do. Presumably Jesus is still up in Galilee and they've had to travel several days from that prison down near the Dead Sea. That's probably a two or three day journey. And so the messengers have left, but Jesus doesn't want to change the subject. He wants to turn the attention of his crowd of hearers to John himself. And so he asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Because these people had gone out into the wilderness to see John. And you know they did have to go out because John's ministry was conducted largely up and down the Jordan River Valley, which runs along the eastern edge of Israel. And so for people to go out to see John, this preacher, this prophet, they would have to hike down miles from their towns and villages up in the hills of Galilee and Samaria and Judea. They would have to travel down to the river valley to hear John. And so they did go out to do this. What would persuade them to make the journey? That's what Jesus wants to know. Why would you make the effort to go and and see this man? What did you go out there to see? Did you go out there to see a reed swayed by the wind? You know, up and down the river, there would be vegetation growing, reeds, cattails, whatever kind of plants that grow along the side of rivers, and they'd be blown by the wind occasionally. Jesus is offering a metaphor here. He's saying, did you go out to see a man who was just like a reed to be blown by the wind, a man who would just flop around depending on what the, the circumstances in society were at that time? Is that who you went to see? No, that's not who you went to see. So did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? In other words, a great man. Did you go out to see a man who was a showman, who would provide for you great entertainments? You know, people have always been drawn to the great showman, to the big events, to the circus, to the grand shows and the big rallies and the magnificent parades. People have always been drawn to those sorts of things. 
They have an appetite for such great things. And even churches have an appetite for those sorts of things. You know, I mean, you recognize, don't you, that so often in our culture especially, churches are tempted to think that big events, that huge efforts and impressive shows of greatness will evangelize the world somehow. And when churches do that, they stumble over the speed bump of their own assessment of greatness because while spectacles can seem great, great is not always good. It's not what people went out to see, as Jesus points out to them. What did they go out to see? They went out to see a prophet. Yes, he says, a prophet, but more than just a prophet. And Jesus offers an interpretation of the Old Testament here. He explains that John is the one about whom Malachi, the prophet, wrote. Verse 27, I tell you, he's more than a prophet. He's the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John was a great prophet. But great is not always good. Jesus says, let me tell you about true greatness. And he goes on, he explains, verse 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's Jesus after here? He's making a contrast. He's drawing a contrast between a couple of things, but but don't miss it. His contrast here is not so much between John and the least saint. But rather, his contrast is really between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. John was the pivotal character in between the two. And that's what he's contrasting. There's a, a phrase that, that uh, theologians will use sometimes, Reformed covenantal theologians especially, with a particular view of Scripture as they explain the relationship with the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they will say that the New Testament is in the Old Concealed, And the Old Testament is in the new revealed. Does that make sense? The new is in the old concealed. The New Testament is there in the Old Testament. It's just concealed in all of what God was doing there. And the Old Testament is not now defunct. It's now in the New Testament revealed. It's made more clear. To be a great prophet like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John was... A great distinction, even if it was a very, very hard job. But to witness the revealing of the kingdom of God, the revealing of the old now in the new, is much, much better. I mean, think think about what John the Baptist probably didn't really know. John probably was not entirely aware that the Messiah would be crucified on a cross. John probably was not entirely aware that the Messiah would rise again from the dead. He probably was not entirely aware that the Messiah would ascend visibly back into heaven before his disciples. He he probably was not aware that the gospel would burst forth by the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the entire earth over the course of the centuries to come. John probably did not know those things. But guess who does? You do. And I do. 
we all recognize these things. We who are least in the kingdom of God, we get to see these things. We're greater than John, as it were, because of what we least among the, the kingdom of God get to see and do. What do we get to see? I mean, we, we can see from our particular historical perspective the development of the church throughout the ages and all of the drama that has come with it. We get to see that the gospel actually does conquer empires, both physical and spiritual. And we get to see the gospel bringing light to the darkest societies. Those are things that have been happening throughout the ages since John the Baptist was laid in the dust. We get to see those things. But not only do we get to see, we also get to do. We get to plant churches. We get to take the gospel to establish new bodies of believers and and plant churches. That's happening here in our midst, in our city, in our presbytery. the, The Presbyterian church is not the only one that's doing these things. We as Christians in the kingdom of God get to to do the planting of churches with the gospel. We get to love our neighbors with the gospel, regardless of who our neighbors are or where they're from or what their cultural heritage or background or religious position is. We get to share the gospel with our neighbors. We get to build things. We get to build schools and businesses with a redemptive value that bring the goodness of God's redemptive work to reflect in society. We get to do those things. We get to create art and music that reflects the redemptive beauty of God's grace. And we get to speak the words of life to the children of death. We get to do those things. Because of what we get to see and do, this side of the cross, we are greater than John the Baptist. So I have a question for you. Do you think that those things, the planting of churches, the, the preaching of the gospel to your neighbor, the building of businesses and schools of art and such that reflects the redemptive value of God's grace, do, you, do those things to you seem only good? Do they seem to you as just, just good things and just ordinary things at times? I mean, do you find yourself on Saturday night sometimes wondering... Will church be worth it tomorrow? Does that ever occur to you? Do you you ever begin to think, are they going to sing that song that I really like? Or are they going to sing that song that I really don't like? Is the sermon going to be any good? I mean, what, what things go through your mind that you begin to wonder? And you think, well, those things are good. But, boy, it sure would be great to just sleep in and kick my legs up with a hot cup of coffee and watch the NFL playoff pregame show. I mean, doesn't that often seem to be great? But beware of the speed bump. Great is not always good because Jesus doesn't assess greatness in the same way that we do. But he has another speed bump in view here in verse 29. And It's one that everyone in our day and age needs to see, and that is that privilege is not always advantage. Privilege is not always advantage. Now, he's offered an assessment of John, and now Jesus turns his attention to assess the people of his day, and Luke's commentary leads us there, verse 29. All the people, 
Even the tax collectors. Now, you've got to love Luke's little injection of humor right there. I mean, do you recognize it? All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So, think about this. Was there something magical about John's baptism? I mean, that seems to be the distinction that Luke makes between these two groups. One group had John's baptism and the other one did not. Well, what was John's baptism about? Do you remember? It was very distinct. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 19, clarifies that for some believers in Acts 19, Paul has arrived in Ephesus and he meets some disciples there and, and he explains to them, that the baptism that they have, the baptism of John the Baptist, was a baptism of repentance, Paul says. There's something else that is required for you in the gospel, and that is grace. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Earlier on in his ministry, John actually would not baptize Pharisees and experts in the law who came to him because they showed no fruit of repentance. That's what he said to them. His message was a message of judgment. And he said to these people, you brood of vipers. You remember these words? You brood of vipers. He said, who told you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think that you can say, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, what does John say to them? Don't you dare rest on your privileges. Don't do it. You need repentance. The Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day had the privilege of heritage and of knowledge and of religious power even. But it was of no advantage to them. Why? Because they did not have repentance. And without repentance, without turning from sin and turning away from temptation, without repentance... There is no gospel grace to be found anywhere. Nowhere. Every Christian needs to recognize that. It is, it is a crucial, critical, vital part of the gospel. Without repentance, there's no grace. And they really are two sides to the same coin. Jesus illustrates with this parable, verse 31. He says, so what can I compare the people of this generation? He says, they're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. Now picture this, these children in in Jesus' day, they've gone to the marketplace, maybe with, with mom and dad, and they've gone there. Mom and dad are shopping. The children are playing. So it's a scene that might be very familiar to you in the mall. You know, picture it in the mall. A group of children over here, they want to play a game. A group of children over here, they don't. And one group calls out to another, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. These are very sophisticated children. But you can see the two sides of the games that they're playing Right? You could call it the parable of the sulking children. One group wants to play and one group does not. And so the one group offers some games that the other rejects. They offer to play the pipe, to play the flute, to play a song that would be worthy of of a dance, a happy song, a song of life and forgiveness. And the other group says, no, not interested. And so they offer, you know, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, 
Well, okay, then we'll offer you a dirge. A dirge is a funeral sort of song, a song of mourning, a song of tears, a song of sadness and death, a song of repentance from sin. And they offer that song, and the other group says, no, I don't think so. Not interested in that either. So what's the point here? John, the Baptist, had come singing a dirge, hadn't he? He had come neither eating bread nor drinking wine. There was not an ounce of fun and games in John's world. That was not the business that he was about. He was there with a word of judgment for the people. He was there with a dirge, and yet those had the privilege of heritage and knowledge and power did not want to hear it. And then Jesus came playing the pipe, so to speak, playing a song of life, both eating and drinking, with everyone who invited him and with some who didn't. And he was offering a song of grace and forgiveness and patience and love, and yet those with the privilege of knowledge and heritage and power didn't want to hear it because privilege is not always advantage. What is privilege after all? Privilege is a special opportunity that's available to certain people at certain times and places, but not available to everyone. That's, that's what a privilege is. And we have a lot of privileges in our day and in our place, don't we? I mean, think about all the privileges that we have. <clears throat> you enjoyed some already today. You know, we can drink water straight from the tap. Does it ever occur to you that that is such a privilege? That's available to us in our place and our time, but it's not available to everyone, and so, you know... It's a privilege. And we can send our kids to the neighborhood schools just by virtue of renting an apartment in the neighborhood. We can do that. We have that opportunity. And we can protest our property taxes. If you're a property owner and you don't like what the government wants to charge you, you can actually protest that and maybe get a judgment in your favor. We we can do those sorts of things. We can even gather freely for worship on a Sunday. And nobody harasses us about it. Nobody bothers. Nobody steps in our way. We can do that freely. But guess what? We don't really care about those things until they're taken away. We don't even notice them. We don't pay attention to those things. We take them for granted until they're taken away. Because privilege is not always advantage. Sometimes it's actually a speed bump. Sometimes it prevents you from seeing what the gospel requests and requires of you. And that is that you must respond to the dirge. Do you weep at the sight of your sin? When someone points out to you some some edge about you that maybe ought to change, do do you recognize it? Do you receive it with humility? Do you even weep for your sin? Or do you simply say to the one who puts that out to you, You've got a demon. You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about because you don't really know me. Is, is that what you do? I mean, if, if you don't actually weep upon the side of your own sin, if you don't respond to the dirge, then when the, pl- the pipe is played, you can't dance. And you won't dance. If you haven't responded to the dirge, you won't hear the music of the pipe. If you haven't responded to the call to repentance, you won't hear the words of grace. So don't get caught up on the speed bumps. But despite the speed bumps, Jesus 
sums up his little lesson here with this last word. He says, wisdom is proved right by all her children. What does he mean? He means this, God's way of salvation, repentance and grace, personified as wisdom here in his words, is proven true by her children. And who are her children? Verse 29, Luke already told us. Who are, who are the children? All the people. Even the tax collectors. Right? All the people. Even the tax collectors who had recognized the repentance to which they were called. The children of wisdom are all who have wept for their sin and now dance to the song of grace. Even you and me. So don't stumble on the speed bumps. They are not always what they seem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. Father, help us to recognize the speed bumps that stand in our way, that uh, arise even out of our own hearts, that cause us to doubt, that cause us to stray, that cause us to turn away from your call to repentance. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize your good news for us in Jesus and to believe. Help us, Lord, even as we come to these communion tables. We pray, Father, that you would meet us there in the bread and the wine and increase our faith to believe you, to recognize your good news, and to trust you for the life that you offer to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.